Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. My name is Goose. My name is Gabby. And this is the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. <laughs> welcome. Hello. Welcome Hello. Hello. Gabby, what are we talking about today? Why is it important? Who's this for? <laughs> <sighs> Whoops. I just broke Gabby. Keep <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm, whilst whilst Gabby's in recovery mode, what we talked spoke about today was uh, five key <laughs> metrics for selecting emerging markets. Right, so yes. we talk about what an emerging market. Gabby's back. Gabby's back. Hello. What, what did we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we spoke about. Um, what is an emerging market? How are they different from hotspots? Why you would want to buy in an emerging market? And then we talk about some really powerful metrics on how to identify them, including some mathematical formulas and all kinds of other really interesting stuff. So yes, you- the formulas are very helpful, guys. So pay attention. Pay- get a pen. <laughs> get a pen. Write them down. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Gabby's back, Hello. and she's here to tell you to pay attention, listen up, and study <laughs> up, guys. <laughs> oh god now if you if you i don't know i i just want to put this out there that if i feel if i sound a little flat in this episode it's because i'm struggling with insomnia so if anyone's got a, if anyone's got a, any kind of hot tips on how to overcome Ooh. insomnia just less send us coffee a, for you no more coffee no. i mean no less coffee yes. get off the black crack so <laughs> okay all right anyway. we'll work out anyway we're not here to talk about coffee we're here to talk about emerging markets and if you enjoy this episode Make sure you share it with somebody else. Let them know. Make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. And if there's any other kind of cool way to interact based on where you're listening to it or watching it, whether it be on YouTube, do a little thumb up and a ding the bell and do all the other cool ding. stuff that they tell you what to do. And likewise on any other platform, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. Um, we love hearing from you guys. So give us feedback. And of course, if you want to check out the other episodes, head to theinvestorlab.com.au. There's also a bunch of free resources there that you can access, download, all of that good stuff. And of course, if you need help to identify emerging markets and select great properties that can be outside mm-hmm. outsized returns and allow you to achieve a greater life, a, a life of freedom, choice, and abundance much faster than you ever might have thought possible, then make sure you let us know as well. There's a contact form on the investorlab.com.au website. So without any further ado, Gabby, let us get stuck right into it. And guys, mm-hmm. we look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Gabby, what's going good on? Good day. Good day. Good day. It is day. a good day, isn't it? It's a lovely day. I'd sound like such a, a hippie every day time I say today. that. <laughs> uh, well, we just had all of that rain. I'm hoping yep. it's now. I'm saying like it's ended, but all of the rain in um, Sydney. It's the first blue sky we've seen in probably a week. Yep. So that's why it's a lovely day. It is. It is. It is. It is. It definitely is. Um, and how are you today? What's been happening? Tell us tell us a little story. What's been going on in, in Gabland? Look, I'm, I'm not the best storyteller, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I keep hoping that if I just keep asking you for stories no, that one day... it doesn't really work. It's like work, a muscle. So it's... Flexing okay. the story muscle. Story muscle. Uh, story. Um, I really have nothing. I'm really not that's okay. about this. No, that's so, okay. It's all good. 
Um, I just think it's funny. It's like normally, so so in previous episodes, it's like, hey, Gabby, what's going on? Well, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, blah, 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 blah. It's pretty much the same, <laughs> same every episode. Uh, and now it's like, well, the rains have stopped and we can see boats. So We can see boats. Which is pretty cool. Yes. Great. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to have a chat about emerging markets. Why? Why? Do you, do you want to ask me? Am I asking us? To, am I going to start interrogating you? What's going on here? What are, no, what are I'm going to interrogate you, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to chat about this because uh, particularly, you know, with real estate activity in the last six or so months, you know, has really picked up. And so everyone's talking about, oh, real estate's so busy at the moment. And a lot of people, you know, are looking to get in, which is great. Mm. Coming out of COVID, you know, People are starting to make moves again. Um, but then the classic is that people usually jump to, you know, these hotspot locations that you hear about through yeah. the news and through media. Um, and then so we've been speaking with our clients and kind of explaining actually how we identify them before we get to them. Um, bef- sorry, before they become a hotspot. So all of these locations that people are talking about, we're actually looking for emerging markets that are becoming hotspots, right? Mm. Um, yeah, so we just thought we'd touch on this a bit. Sounds good. Sounds good. Where do you want to start? Well, like I just touched on, we we have talked about hotspots quite a bit before. So I really want to know what is the difference between a hotspot and an emerging market? Or what is an emerging market? Okay, so there's a, yeah, this let's let's dig into that. So <laughs> I'll come back to what is an, an emerging market. Maybe we'll come back to why, what, how it's different from a hotspot. Let's start with what is an emerging market. So, um, an emerging market is uh, essentially, and you can you can think about this in a global scale. So, often when people talk, when you hear the term emerging market, it's typically more, um, it's more commonly referred to in when you're talking about like global global markets. And so, it mm-hmm. might be so. For example, Vietnam is an emerging market. You've got your main superpowers, which are you know, you know, Russia, US, China, uh, and you've got some like tier two powers and stuff, which would be like Australia and, you know, whatever, some, mm-hmm. you know, all these other kind of places. They're kind of like the big ones. And then you've got emerging markets. So they're the economies which are um, undervalued, haven't fully realized their economic potential, um, are starting to grow quite quickly, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, India. Um, in- India has turned into a superpower now, but it's still an emerging market because it's still mm. under, it's still under, you know, underutilized in terms of its um, yep. economic development. Uh, Vietnam is a really big one at the moment um, because they are pushing heavily uh, into um, modernization of of their economic standards in a lot a lot of different ways. So finance sector and heaps of really interesting stuff there. Um, some parts of Africa are emerging markets, and they're the ones that are on the move, basically. So not just basic, not just economies which are inherently not as good as, say, the US uh, or or China, for example, but the ones that are transforming. So the ones that are actually on the move that are emerging, right? So the, the key, the key, the key point there is is that they are growing, right? And that there is an impetus for them to grow, and there's an and that they are moving in the right direction. And this is this is the interesting way to think about it because. When you take any of these kind of global uh, financial constructs or economic constructs and start to think about how you can apply them on a more micro level, you start to see a lot of similarities. It's quite fractal in a certain sense. So when we're talking about emerging markets, what we're talking about, you know, if you think about, if you think about, um, you know, 
US being a blue chip suburb and you know China being a blue chip suburb uh, and you know the UK being a blue chip suburb and all of this kind of stuff or you know that you could liken them to being places like Sydney and Melbourne where you know the, the economies have been strong for long they've been in power for a long time their their total um, national GDP is higher blah 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 and then you can kind of go okay well where where are the where's the Vietnams in Australia where are the where are the markets which are transforming and what is actually causing that transformation and also how would I like how would I judge that because a lot of things that go into identifying an emerging market on a global on a global scale like on a on a macro scale you got to think about you know what are things like corruption and uh, government stability and things like that but these are these all apply actually actually even when we're talking about real estate markets as well because if you've got a council if you've got a local government council where there's a high level of corruption which happens mm-hmm. I, I think like in Geelong basically the whole council got sacked right <laughs> yes. and even in even in Ipswich you know they they had um, their their mayor or whatever who for years he was like he was like the don of Ipswich he was like the boss and he, everyone loved him and he was like responsible for heaps of economic prosperity it turns out he was turns out he was on the take you know so <laughs> you do have these kind of considerations even on local government levels so you've got that kind of stuff happening there too you've got stability what is what are the government changes going to be all that stuff so you can kind of see a lot of similarities now there's another way to think about emerging markets as well and it's like small cap stocks versus um, blue chip stocks, okay? So blue mm-hmm. chip stocks being, I don't know, like Fortescue, BHP, basically, you know, the ASX 200 or Fortune 500 companies, stuff like that. Big behemoths where the total net, uh, the total net value or, or the market capitalization of these, of these um, companies is tremendously huge. You know, you, you know, You've got companies like Accenture, for example, where they do about $45 billion a year in revenue and they've got 500,000 employees, right? They're, they're a Fortune 500 company. Um, but then you've got smaller companies that are uh, small cap stocks. So, for example, you know, Vulcan Energy, for example, is a small cap in the energy sector, which is doing carbon carbon neutral lithium or something to that effect. It's grown by something like ten thousand percent in the first in the first twelve in the last twelve months, you know, or a thousand percent or something like that. It's crazy, and so you've got this different these differentiating factors between identifying uh, markets and what they're for. So I think I think using shares uh, to illustrate sort of blue chip and emerging is a really interesting example because a lot of people intrinsically understand that a little bit more. So uh, if you think about, I don't know, let's talk about BHP. If they create a billion dollars in profit in a year, that might result in, and again, don't, this is not like actual maths, but that might result in, I don't know, a a 10% or a five, 5% increase in the share value. For example, it's going to be relatively minor, still good, Still good when you're looking at the total share, the total company at uh, market cap and all of that kind of stuff. But if you have um, uh, a company which is much smaller, maybe it's a ten million dollar company. If you applied that same amount of profit and made a billion dollars in profit, that would go from like I don't know, a two cent share to a to a hundred dollar share or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so the the market movement can be much more significant. Now the key, of course, as with any of these kind of things, is how do you identify uh, the how do you identify which assets or which markets or any of that kind of stuff which ones are moving and which ones are just cheap right because there's cheap does not equal good um and so for example I, I i have an interest in small cap stocks i don't like i'm not a trader or anything mm-hmm. like that. i just have an interest in it because i like small companies i like the story uh i like the potential growth rates and stuff like that 
And but what I find what I find uh, quite interesting about it is there's I don't know maybe like two thousand companies that are all small cap or micro cap where you could buy shares in them for know, less than well well and truly less than a dollar sometimes sometimes less than a cent. But that doesn't mean that just because they're cheap that you should buy them in the hope that in the hope that they're all of a sudden going to grow by you know thousands of percents. And so yeah, the sure. the question the question then is how do you assess the value now in the big hedge funds. There are, and you know, interestingly, the in the in the in the money markets or in the in the investment markets at the moment, there's a lot of movement going on because there's a lot of disruptive new funds and stuff starting, and um, but they're targeting people that are specialists in different areas, so like emerging market specialists, small cap specialists, people that go and actually go and do an assessment on these kind of products, these types, asset types, these locations, whatever the case may be, to identify unlocked value. And so when we can kind of explode this and, you know, shrink it in and out, zoom in and out to understand that in different different ways. Does that kind of explain what it is? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, equivalent in real estate would be like areas where, you know, just because, again, like just because they're cheap doesn't mean that that's, that it's a sign that it's going to yeah. grow so a lot of places where people can get crazy yields because the price point is so much lower but it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that it's got the fundamentals that the property needs in order for it to eventually emerge totally and you've also got volatility there's a couple of other things in there as well you've got volatility and uh you've got longevity as well so you know it's easy for an emerging market to have a spike and this you apply this again to shares countries whatever it doesn't really matter it's easy for it to have a spike but if it's not sustainable it's not gonna it's not gonna continue on so um looking for and as and you can also just like with a business and with also with a with a country and also with real estate market it's very hard to time the bottom and the top mm. so what you need to look for is not oh is this cheap is this um priced less than it once was uh, you know, or anything like that. You're actually got to look for what are the what are the signs that this is going to transform into something different? Because just buying cheap or just trying to like time or you know enter into markets when they are low is not is not actually really a strategy unless you can understand uh, what the future holds. And I think this is actually one of the biggest issues that I see. With, I see there's a lot of companies out there which will try and um, predict growth, uh, which is awesome, and this is sort of, sort of something that we're leaning towards as a business as well. But the the methodology I see with a lot of these companies, and I saw it was interesting. I saw an article in the AFR, I don't know, last week or something like that, and it was like talking about the suburbs that are predicted to have thirty percent price rises and whatnot. So naturally, I read the article, um, uh, and I was looking at the methodology of the company and how they do the predictions, and they're only ever looking at historical data. So what mm. they look at is things like you know um, uh, auction clearance rates, and but it's all it's all historical. Now historical is important because you need to understand what the story is to get there, but you also need to think about okay, where is this going? What is the what is the potential that is about to be un- unlocked here? Yeah, cool. So how how are they different from hotspots then? Emerging well, markets. It's a good question, right? So, I think one of the most common problems that I see that property investors have is that they hear about hotspots, and it's already too late. When you've already heard about a hotspot, it mm, is currently yep. hot. Totally. Yep. It's not emerging. It's already there. It's already hot. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's and that's actually a big issue. The way that I think about that, just kind of using the same. 
like shares kind of analogy. It's like imagine if you bought Afterpay when it was – look, I don't know where Afterpay started as a share price. So, don't take this again as like <laughs> actual. But imagine if you bought Afterpay when it was 10 cents, you know, a share. Yep. Now, most people have, like the people that bought in early into those into those really powerful emerging um, shares and stuff have done very, very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who came in late when it's already – when they're reading about it in the paper and it's like, oh, my God. Or the buy now, pay later stocks. Yeah, they're going up. Yeah, we should buy some of that. They could buy too high and then lose a bunch of money, right? So that's the same thing with hotspots. Pretty much, if you've already heard about it, if you've already heard that it's a hotspot, it's already too late, pretty simply. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the key differentiating factor. And, and we actually, so when we actually did the, the hunting hotspot series, the premise of that, if you go all the way back to the first episode, was how do you, uh, so it was, it was before the hotspot. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, how to identify a hotspot? It was before the hotspot, how to identify locations that are primed for growth? Because that's really the key factor. That's, yep. I think, the biggest differentiating factor between success and failure in real estate is your ability to understand the markets. Now, I've said this before that anyone who says you can't time markets is just an idiot. Uh, you, you know, you can't time the bottom. There is no way to like to know has it reached its bottom or its yep. top. Today is the day. Yeah, because it's yep. like they're just two static moments. But you certainly can time your entry into a market based on a bunch of, uh, you know, characteristics, criteria, metrics that we can measure to assess is this an opportune time to enter into the market. Because um, like at the end of the day, if you, if you look and, and if you look around the country at the moment and there are many, many markets which are booming and they're not the ones you want to buy in. They're the ones where you're going to be having multi-offers on properties. They're the ones where you're reading in the paper and it's like, oh my God, this property's just sold for you know $100,000 more than the reserve and all of this kind of stuff. And quite frankly, you're not going to get a good deal in those markets because you're already pricing in the growth. People are pricing in the FOMO. And mm. so the way to get a leading edge advantage, the way to get accelerated returns in real estate is to identify emerging markets. But again... You've got to be really careful because it's easy if you don't understand what to look for, it's easy to mistake a cheap market for an for an emerging market. And if you use that metric, you're, you're almost certainly going to go wrong because there's, there's over 15,000 different suburbs in Australia and a significant amount of them are going to be cheap. And a significant amount of, amount of them also will have... You know, maybe had a high price at some point. There might have been something in their in their past which caused the prices to be high. So it could be a mining project, or it could be I don't know. It could be anything, right? And that price may have come down, but just because it has once been high and has now come down doesn't again mean that it's going to go back up unless there's a significant impetus for that kind of uh, economic change in the area. Cool. Hmm. Yeah. So. Uh- you just touched on FOMO there. I just want to explore that a little bit. So I guess if you if you take it from a, a psychographic perspective, I yeah. guess, yeah. it's um, most people when they hear of a hotspot in mm-hmm. the media or whatever and, and think that, okay, I'm going to go and buy there, now it's the time to go there. Yeah. Um, classic for the last, you know, 12 to 24 months is Brisbane. You know, so many people still saying, got to get into Brisbane now when it's you know far too late from through our methodology it's too late Um, but I guess from a psychographic perspective people 
it's way less volatile for most people and they're much more comfortable going into somewhere that has way less risk from their perspective. Yeah. To go into a market that is already showing some signs. They may not they may have missed that first, you know, upswing from when it emerged as a market, but you know, there's still some activity. Yeah. And they're going to ride that and I think most people from a psychological perspective that's what brings people into those markets because they're like, oh, well, I'm probably going to, it's probably going to do something and that's better than the risk of, you know, trying to get time a market somewhere else and getting it wrong. It's good. It's a great point. Does and that this make is, sense? It makes total sense. It makes total sense. And and it's a really great point. And what you're talking about is is risk profile yeah. more, more specifically. Now, is it more or less risky to buy a... Um, buy a share in a company that is a Fortune 500 company or an ASX 200 company or something like that? Is it, is it more? Do you think it's more likely that BHP is still going to continue to be around in the next 10 years, for example? Uh, you know, like... Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The likelihood if you invest in blue chip stocks, for example, and I'm using this analogy so that we've got... No, it's, the, it's the good, it's an accurate analogy. Yeah, so the, yeah. The, the, you're, you're more likely to get a lower percentage return uh, over an annual basis, and don't get me wrong, it'll still be good. Like, let's just say it's six percent compounding return. That's mm-hmm. great. That's awesome. Um, but it's more likely to be a lot safer, particularly if you've got yep. an index. If you've got a, like a, if you've got if you're invested in a in an index um, of the you know ASX two hundred index or whatever, it's more likely that you're going to get consistent returns over time with a lot less volatility and all of that kind of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, I hate volatility. I don't want to. I don't want to invest in risky markets. This is why we need to understand how do we identify them, right? You don't want to take risks. I think risks are stupid. Um, but just in the same way that Warren Buffett has a process to identify the companies that he wants to invest in um, on a value investing basis, PE ratios and stuff like that, he's got a methodology for doing due diligence to go, okay, why would I choose this company over another one? We also then have a methodology to be able to do that as well. So the, again, just to, just to illustrate that point, it's a, it's a risk profile, but that doesn't mean that you want to go and take a bunch of risks, mm-hmm. right? You want to make sure you're doing the homework. Risk I think only comes when you lack knowledge and when you lack information, you know, because there's inherently, I think, in many ways, less risk uh, and potentially higher returns if you understand, uh, if you can understand the information. Because I know, I know plenty of people who have bought in um, the greater Brisbane area and, ha- you know, for the last two years or more have seen zero growth. And I've then gone and looked at the data, and they're probably still going to see zero growth, or zero, or zero, um, you know, zero adjusted inflation adjusted growth for the next couple of years because there's just not a lot going on there, and so that inherently is, has a risk as well. So just following the crowd because of FOMO can actually lead you to make some bad decisions as well, mm. because you're not you're still not looking at the information, you're still not making an educated and informed decision. Just in the same way that you could buy. I don't know. You could buy you could buy shares in Rio Tinto, thinking they're they're nice blue chip and fantastic house safe, and then they go and blow up an Aboriginal site, and their share price plummet plummets because yeah. they you know because they've they've got a bad PR and they've damaged you know a, a, a cultural icon and all all of this kind of stuff. 
that's yeah. not safe either, right? Yeah. So you've got to understand these risks and got to understand there's risks in every in every situation. So then you've got to then you actually got to look at from from a risk reward basis and make an educated decision on that. And look, what we do in targeting emerging markets isn't for everyone, right? If you if you are happy to have a 30, 40 year investment journey, um, if you are happy owning one or two properties, if you are on a high income and you are looking for tax incentives uh, as opposed to, you know, f- you know, uh, cash flow incentives and stuff like that, then cool. All right, I don't know. Maybe maybe go buy something in um, go buy something in whatever Surrey Hills or something, right? Um, it'll probably work. It'll work out just great over the long term because the the demand for Sydney, I don't think, is ever going to go anywhere. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. city with a lot of uh, economic power. It's a it's blue chip. It's the it's the it's the US economy in Australia, right? It's it's that. Yeah. So you can put your money there. That's all good, but it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. Now, most people I know, if they can get their results faster and better uh, and sooner, rather than wait 20, 40 years and still maybe not get the result they want. You know they're going to choose that because also what happens when you add speed is you actually decrease risk because for example let's just say you go well this could take me 20 30 years because i'm buying in a i don't know a market that i don't know but i'm just going to chuck my money there and see what happens and property always goes up it might not really perform as well as it should and you're going to have to wait 20 years to, to work that out right um if you have the ability to go faster by investing in emerging markets and getting higher cash flow and higher growth and all of that kind of stuff that's going to allow you to build a bigger portfolio that's more diversified and a more diversified portfolio inherently has less risk. If you have 10 properties as opposed to one and one property goes vacant and loses its tenants, that's only 10% of your portfolio as opposed to 100%. Yep. So there's a lot of other factors that um, by by investing in emerging markets, you can actually decrease your risk by having a greater spread and mm-hmm. also simultaneously increase your returns. So I think it's I actually think it's, in my opinion, it's actually a lower a lower risk strategy. But again, you have to understand the info. Yeah, cool. Okay. So from a just going on from that risk risk mitigation perspective, you know, mm-hmm. understanding the information is so key. But what what kind of information do we need to understand? Good question. So internally, we have we have 147 different metrics. I counted them up just before we started recording this episode. <laughs> 147 different metrics. Um, but there are some, there are a few, there are a few that if you can work them out would give you a, give you a significant advantage to identify the, the, the markets to enter into. So one of them, a big one is supply and demand. Now, su- supply and demand makes up about 33% of the weighting of, of a growth factor. Okay, so on a statistical basis, supply versus demand isn't one hundred percent. It's about thirty three percent in terms of, you know, how much of growth can be attributed to that single single component out of a suite of other different components. Yeah, still substantial there. It's massive, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a huge win, right? If I could have thirty three percent better sleep, I'd take it. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a small thing. So there's there's and there's there's mathematical ways to work that out. Um, the there's an interesting, and I'm going to give away a bit of our secret sauce here with some of this <laughs> kind of stuff. But um, it's why we're here. It's why we're here. Why the hell not? Okay, so an easy way to work out um, supply and demand is the sales listings from the past month divided by the the total number of sales for the past twelve months, and that will give you a ratio um, that you can use to plot on a graph uh, and give you an understanding of of the of and if you if you track the that metric 
over time, you're going to be able to see what the what the change in that market is and whether supply is increasing versus demand. Okay, cool. so that's there's there's some some little sneaky little maths in there for you as well. In <laughs> fact, why don't we um why don't we go through like some of the ma- some of the mathematics behind some of these key points as well? Awesome, so, great. Okay, so supply and demand. So supply and demand is obviously a, uh, a it's a pretty easy to understand factor. It's like if there's if there's a town and there are one thousand houses and there are one thousand people that want to live in houses, then you have equilibrium. It's a very simple way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. If you are in a town and there are one thousand houses and then somebody create and there are one thousand people and then somebody creates another one thousand jobs and therefore there are two thousand people that want one thousand houses, then you have twice as much uh, demand as you have supply. Yep. Okay. So the, so and then that is going to be reflected in the sales volume data. Um, and you'll be able to see that, see what that trend is. You obviously want to, you want to look at trends, not static numbers, because data viewed in isolation is, is just going to steer you in the wrong, wrong direction every single time. So you need to be able to track the trends. You need to be able to see which direction it's going. But that alone is not going to, it's not going to give you the full story, right? So we'll, we'll talk about a couple of other key metrics that you can kind of layer up to start to paint a fuller picture. Um, but supply and demand is a huge one. Now the other thing, there's another. Do, do you have any questions on that? No, so I just wanted to clarify, like, the prices go up when there is more demand because it basically incites competition between the people who are bringing the demand. Yeah. So instead of having one person trying to get one property, there's two people trying to get one property, so there's a competition between them. Exactly. Not yep. literally, but from a yeah, from pretty a much perspective, that's what... Well, pretty that's much literally because what will typically happen is if there's more demand than supply, that's typically when you see markets moving to more auction-based sales as opposed to private treaties, yeah. right? Because they want to put people in competition and then quite literally, you the two people could be standing there and be in direct yeah. competition and push up the price to try and beat the other one. So yeah, you do get into direct competition, not even just metaphorical yeah. competition and that's what pushes prices up. Yeah. Um, and the same thing goes on any other on any other financial instrument or any other asset class. Um, if there's an old there's an old saying in business that when demand exceeds supply, raise your prices. Simple, yeah. right? So, um, and that's the easiest way to make more profits in 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 any in any environment is to charge more for the same thing rather than sell more of the same of the same thing at the same price. Yep. Um, so, the diamond market is a really great example of that. Apparently, there's there's no shortage of diamonds. <laughs> they just deliberately restrict the flow of them to the market to com- to to keep the supply versus demand metric uh, mm-hmm. in in the right place to keep the value proposition the right way. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and then like the flip side of that, you know, when we see when demand is exceeding supply, so then their their prices are booming, mm. and then that's when you start seeing new developments come in to try and build new lots to house the new people in those areas. But then at some point it tips back, right, where suddenly there's more supply for the amount of demand of people in that area or coming to that area. And then so there's less than one person per house available. So the, there's negative competition, if that makes sense. It makes it makes sense. It makes sense. And I like the way that you thought about it because that actually leans into another key metric. So there's there's five that, that we want to talk about at the moment, right? Yep. Um, so one is supply and demand. So we've kind of covered that and how to, how to calculate that. Future supply risk though, that's what you're talking about because mm-hmm. that, that affects... Okay, so if the current supply is less than the current demand, that is good. But what is the future supply risk? And so I kind yep. of spoke earlier... That um, these kind of there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to say, hey, you should buy here now, but they're not looking at the future. 
Yeah. And there's a few things that we want to look at. We want to look at what are the growth drivers, uh, what's the future supply risk, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Um, but it's a good, good opportunity to jump into future supply risk because yep. it, what typically doesn't happen is it, it typically isn't a case of um, a, a market exists and then uh, all of a sudden um, jobs get created and um, demand increases and supply de- decreases relative to to demand. And then some developer goes, oh, I can see a gap in the market. I'm going to mm-hmm. go and put in my application. That's already happening in advance because they're looking for growth drivers as well. They're looking for emerging markets. Yep. So what we need to look at whenever we're looking at emerging markets is what is the current known future supply risk? Because developers don't just walk along, buy a bit of land, and start building houses. It's a process. It takes about eighteen months, um, or can take longer as well. But you know, you've got to draw a line in the sand on how you want to measure the metric. So, one way to measure uh, future supply risk is monthly building approvals, eighteen month average times one hundred. Right. So you can go, you can get the actual building approval rates. You go, okay, how many, how many new dwellings have been approved in this? So we'll talk about this mythical town of a thousand people, uh, and a th- uh, sorry, a thousand houses, and now and then a thousand people, and then they've created a thousand jobs. So there's now two thousand people want to live there, and then you can go, okay, well, damn, there's twice as many people want houses than we have houses, but how many houses are being built? How many houses are about to be built? Because there could be a big development of 5,000 houses that's about to hit the market. And then, you know, then, mm. the, then the supply risk could be so significant that it'll soak up any potential um, uh, people that want to live there. And then the growth could go down, not up. It could, yeah. be, it could be inverse. So you've got to look at that. And you can, so you can look up the building approval rates. Go, okay, how many houses are being built based on what we know about the, about the current levels of demand and the velocity rate of change? Like how... How much is demand, at what rate is demand exceeding supply? Because it's not a static thing. You'll look mm-hmm. at the trend line, you'll go, okay, the, the demand level is increasing by X units per, per month and the supply level is staying the same or, dec- you know, so you better see the velocity rate of change. You better use that to imply where you think it might go based on some other factors as well, which we'll talk about growth drivers and stuff. Um, but the future supply risk is the monthly approvals, the 18-month eight, average monthly approvals, times 100 uh, divided by the number of existing houses in the market, right? And that's mm-hmm. how you can that's how you can then work out, okay, if there are 1,000 houses and 2,000 people that want houses and there are on an average of 20 houses being released on the market every month, then in five months, we're going to have an extra 100 houses and, you know, you can start to imply what that is going to mean from a supply risk perspective. Um and that's going to give you some insight on whether demand is going to stay significantly higher than supply or not. And that's going to give you some, that'll allow you to look into the distance a little bit and say, okay, well, what's happening here? What's happening here over the next 18 months? And is, is this likely to, is the, is the demand supply ratio likely to get better or worse for this in the foreseeable future? Cool. Super cool. <laughs> super cool. Because a lot of people don't understand how to, how to work this kind of stuff out, right? Yeah, for sure. So, a couple of other leading indicators as well is uh, obviously rental vacancy rates. But this isn't this is any of this stuff viewed in isolation is not going to lead you in the right direction. So, you got to look at all this stuff together because vent, rental vacancy rates could be coming down. I can think of I can think of dozens of locations right now where the rental vacancy rate has gone down and the median rents have gone up, which are two which are two other key leading indicators. But 
for a variety of reasons, I think they're not gonna they're not gonna be you know significantly good emerging markets because there's either the supply future supply risk is too high or the project pipeline is too low. So just to kind of touch on those points, right? So, so the five five key factors we're talking about today is supply versus demand, rental vacancy rates, median rents, project pipeline, and future supply risk. So we've kind of covered supply and demand and future mm-hmm. supply risk. So median rents, this is interesting, right? So yields are good. Yields are a good metric. We always talk about yields. Oh, yeah, we want good yields. We want good yields. We want good yields. However, the yield of a property, i.e. the revenue it generates relative to the price, is is exactly that. It's relative to the price. So the question then would be, could the yield of a property go up if the prices of a property were going down? Yes. Yeah, exactly, right? So just measuring yields is not actually a good enough indicator of of the of the demand potential in an area or you know what's going on there. What yeah. we actually want to look at is we want to look at our rents increasing. Now, if rents are increasing, we kind of covered this in the last episode. We want to see rents increasing. That's a precursor to growth and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But if the rent is increasing relative to the the property price is staying the same or slightly growing, then that's going to create a higher yield. But you want to actually track the median rents as opposed to the median yields because if you have an area where, for, I don't know, just for example, there is low economic stability and people are like, I definitely don't want to buy a house here, but I have to work here. Um, therefore, I'm going to rent. Uh, I can think of loads of mining towns where that would be appropriate. Then the rents go up, the yields go up massively, but the property prices maybe don't go up as much and the property prices may go down, for example. So it, you've got to look at rents. You got to look at rents as the factor of a demand, as opposed to just pegging pegging yields off the off the property price. So uh, median rents, um, you want to look at look for increasing there, so you can kind of track that. There's loads of ways to get the data, SQM and stuff like that is really good. And um, rental vacancy rates. So what we want to look at there is the number of rental listings divided by the number of investor owned properties. Okay, so if you've if you've if there's this town of a thousand people, and there's a hundred listings, rental listings. Mm-hmm. Then that would be a ten percent vacancy rate. Yep. Right. Um, but if there was only a hundred rentable properties in that whole town, i.e., the other nine hundred were all owner occupiers and weren't up for rent, were never going to be up for rent. They weren't rent. They weren't renter properties. Yep. Then you would actually have a hundred percent vacancy rate. Yeah. Okay, so then that would imply that it's got a pretty weak rental market, right? Yes. And so, and so, I think this is another thing that gets gets overlooked. Now, it's never going to be that extreme, but it is very interesting to look at what the differentiating factor is because, you know, when you're when you're identifying markets that maybe have a vacancy rate of, I don't know, one percent, what you can actually find is that when you a- apply it to not the total number of dwellings in a market, but the total number of investor-owned rentable dwellings in a market. Then you actually get a much clearer image of, of what is the rental demand in that area, and you might find that vacancy rate changes from a one percent to a three percent, which is a pretty interesting kind of consideration as well. Mm, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask you, Gabby, do you, is this helping you understand the, the emerging markets? Because I know that I'm usually digging into all the data stuff a little bit more than you. Is this helping you to kind of understand these markets as well? Yeah, it is. I think it's um a lot of it is secret sauce, right? So a lot of it is. Um, the principles I think make sense, but you know, hearing the hearing the the math of how we're identifying them and what actually is okay, supply and demand. Like this is the formula to identify mm. what the what the supply and demand is doing right now. 
Yeah. Um, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I hope it's helpful. There's going to be some nerds out there that are going to start building graphs and stuff. <laughs> um, awesome. So here's the other thing that I wanted to talk about. We've spoken about four factors now, supply versus demands, rental vacancy rates, median rents, and future supply risk. Now, future supply risk is obviously looking into the future. So if we break it, split this in half sort of thing, supply and demand, rental vacancy rates, and median rents, that's all like now and historical. That's, that's yep. basically all historical data up to today. That's what you can track. What we want to do is we want to look into the future, and this is where the differentiating factor comes between successfully picking emerging markets. We spoke about future supply risk, but another really interesting one is um, is project pipeline. So, uh, what we want to look at, and there's there's a form there's formulas for this as well, right? So, if you have a town that has, I don't know, we talk about the same town, a thousand people, uh, <laughs> a thousand houses, right, and a thousand people, and then um, there's Two billion dollars worth of new projects happening in that town, uh, and you can assess the the economic impact of that town. Is it long term or short term? And also, what the jobs uh, that are going to create both short term and long term? Because it'll usually be a construction phase and then an operational phase and all of that kind of stuff. You can then use that to imply what the ongoing economic prosperity of that location is going to be. So the easiest way to think about that is if you if you have this town and then um, there's a $1 billion road getting built, but all of the contractors are from out of town. No one spends any time there. Um, they drive in, they lay some tarmac and they drive out again and none of the money stays in town, then it really doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. It's an, it, The town's going to get a nice road, but that's it. Yeah. Um, but... If there is a project which is going to stay in that town, and the money is going to be spent in that town, or the pe- or the workers have to move there either permanently or temporarily, um, that is going to mean that the money is going to get spent locally, and it's going to filter into the broader the broader economy. So um, the the formula that we can use for that is project the the project dollar value divided by the population size. Uh, then divide that by the economic timeline times the completion probability. Okay, so it's a little bit more complex to work out. All right, but if you c- consider all these factors, if the if the economic timeline is how long is the money going to stay in the town? Mm-hmm. That's the timeline. Is it is it is it likely to have an economic impact for the next 1 year, 2 years, 5 years, 10 years, 20 years? So for example, uh, an example of a long-term economic impact project would be a redevelopment of a port, right? To turn it into a uh, international trading facility or something like that. That's going to have ongoing impact because it's going to transform the local economy. It's going to drive more commerce. It's going to have all this other kind of stuff happening around it. Um, a short-term project would be something like uh, we're going to do a uh, we're going to do a renewable energy project, which which is going to generate ten thousand jobs for the first twelve months, and then five jobs for the next twenty years. Right? Yeah. That would be a shorter-term impact. I wouldn't have as much ongoing ongoing. Uh, now, the the other interesting thing is the is the completion probability. Right? It's all well and good to mm-hmm. go. Oh, there's 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 all these announcements about you know billions of dollars of projects mm-hmm. happening here, but what actually? How can we weight that? How can we understand the probability of that becoming true? Because we all know politicians are, are famous for basically talking shit. You know, they'll say whatever needs to be said in order to appear good in the media and all that kind of stuff. And not all that doesn't always happen. How many, how many, how many promises have we had broken by politicians? Um, and the same thing happens with businesses. Businesses can announce new big projects and then, for whatever reason, change. 
go, actually, this isn't in line with our strategy or actually we've lost a bunch of money. So um, I can think of loads of cases where, where that has been the case. So um, yeah, it's not it's not always like the politician has lied and just said what they wanted to say to get in. <laughs> no, but it's not, not always <laughs> sometimes lies, right? it's like you know priorities have changed and we need to reallocate resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly, exactly. Right, and that's the better way. That's a better. Um, <laughs> that's a better way to think about it rather than just like liars. Damn, police. So, but we but we can measure this, right? So you've sort of got you've got five distinct phases, and even if you just give them all a twenty percent weighting, that's going to give you a probability. That's going to give you a probability weighting that you can apply. So if there's a billion dollars uh, worth of announced projects, let me actually talk through the stages, right? So the five stages are early planning slash announcement, mm-hmm. right? Uh, planning. So that's like okay, we started submitting the the planning applications to councils to do the whatever the project is. Uh, tenders, okay, right, the project's been approved, we've got the plans, they've been approved, now we need to find the people that are going to start to do the project, so issuing of, of the tenders. Mm-hmm. Construction, okay, we're actually starting to build the project and then completion. They're the five phases, right? So announcement, planning, tenders, construction and completion. Now, completion is obviously 100% because it's like, well, it's done. It's done, now, yes. it's done. Now, you, you want to look for projects that aren't necessarily at 100%, but there's also the reason, the reason that um, construction isn't at the 100% mark or they've started is because there are plenty of projects that get started that don't finish, right? Yep. So um, 100% would be completion because it's done, it's known. Uh, if you said that uh, the, at the announcement phase, it was only 20%. So, you know, there's a new announcement of a billion-dollar project happening in this town, Um how, how would you then assess what the probability is? We'd say, well, I'm going to give that a 20% rating that that is going to come true. So, therefore, I would assess the economic impact based on 20% of $1 billion. Yep. Easiest way to think Makes about sense. it. And then as it progresses through the stages, the probability of that coming to fruition increases and, therefore, you can increase the weighting of that. And what the good thing is, right, typically there's going to be multiple projects happening in, a, in an area. So they're all going to be at different stages. So you get this nice little mix of, of different probabilities and total dollar values and you can aggregate all of that. It's typically not one project. There might be 15 major projects happening in a local area from, you know, uh, small developments through to major developments to public infrastructure, private infrastructure, all this kind of stuff. And you can start to weight that and then go, okay, what's the likelihood that this is going to come to fruition? And then going back to it, so... Uh, what is the project dollar value divided by the population size divided by the economic timeline and the, which is divided by the, the completion probability. So that will give you a formula to understand what the ratio is um, that you need to look for. And again, it's just a case of looking at those numbers, uh, you know, finding areas, ranking them, rating them, assessing that versus the future supply risk, the current supply and demand, all of this kind of stuff. You can start to paint a really, really interesting picture around how to select these emerging markets. Mm. I think again. I think these formulas are really helpful because we've never we, shared any of these before. Yeah, I think I Julian's going to hate me. So <laughs> Julian, just for everyone's benefit, Julian is one of our team members who focuses on research here at Dashdot. <laughs> He's going to hate me giving these away. Yeah. Why are you telling everyone? Um, yeah, but I think like there's, there's a lot of people that we speak to that you know love doing this kind of research, but yeah. you know ha- being able to have a formula that you can okay, I've got to find the project dollar values and I've got to stick that in the formula and then I've got to find the population size and I've got to stick that in the formula and like mm. doing building it all out being able to put the information in a machine to then communicate a result to people I think that's really helpful yeah totally and again look this is five 
these are five yeah. key metrics. <laughs> We've got 147. What was it? 147. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, th- we'll get this- through them all eventually. <laughs> <laughs> we could. We could do like one episode per key metric and just talk about that for the next 147 episodes. And then could. by the end of it, you'll be able to build your own research methodology just like this. Yay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but look, and this, and th- again, this is about identifying emerging markets, not, not yes. necessarily the right properties, not necessarily the right strategy. It just kind of gives you some leading indicators to know to know where you're going. And again, go back to the start, like what we were talking about at the start of the episode was, you know, we're not trying to time the bottom. You know, we're not trying mm-hmm. to just look for markets that have gone down in value and then we can go, oh, maybe they're at the bottom now. What we're actually looking for is, is very significant uh, indicators that show us that an area is transforming and mm-hmm. why. And it allows us to look into the future a little bit as well. Sweet. Cool. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, guys. Gabby, have you got any other questions about this? Do you think this has been good? Do you think it's been a useful episode for people? Of course I think it's been good. I'm not going to say it's been been terrible. (laughs) You could say that. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. No, again, I really really think it has been helpful. I think it's... um, it's always good to hear just like what are the five most important things, you know, because there's so many, like you said, 147 that we use, but there's so many things that people, you know, talk about as being like this is the thing you need to focus on. But I really think if everyone can wrap their head around these five metrics, that's going to help. And as you said, it doesn't help with property selection or, or you know, portfolio no. strategy or anything. This is purely about identifying emerging markets. But, yeah, I think these five key um, yeah, it's super valuable. Totally. And again, it's like looking at all this kind of stuff together is the key because yeah. you can you can look for vacancy rates decreasing and you can look for median rents increasing and you can be like, ooh, could be yeah. a hotspot. But yeah. unless you look at the, what the actual supply and demand metric is, unless you look at what the project pipeline is, unless you look at what the future supply risk is, you could end up just buying a dud. You could buy, buy a dud property in a dud location and not get to where you want to go. So... Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right, guys. If you've liked this, make sure you let us know and uh, make sure you share this with somebody else. Give us a little give us a little bit of a give us a bit of a vibe. We love feedback. <laughs> um, we love hearing from you guys. It's really cool to to see we're actually nearly getting up to episode one hundred. This is episode ninety something. So we're nearly at episode one hundred and we've uh, cool. and it's and it's so exciting to constantly hear from new listeners. Or maybe that aren't well, some that are new that I found the podcast and then just gone and digested all the episodes, yeah. uh, and then they're just you know frothing over it, which is awesome. <laughs> but also some of the people that have been with us for a long time that haven't let us know that they're listening to it, but have been listening to it for a long time. We love hearing from you guys, so let us know. Uh, just send us an email to hello at dash dot com Give us some feedback. Let us know if there's anything specifically you want us to tackle. Like if there is a big question, big burning question in your mind about how to achieve greater levels of freedom, choice, and abundance. If you, it can be you know more spiritually oriented it can be property mechanics oriented it can be philosophical it can be whatever you want if there's a way that we can tailor this content to better serve you and the whole you not just the property you because property is just one piece of the whole equation right mm-hmm. so if you can help us to, uh, to help you then we would love to so let us know shoot us an email hello at dash dot au. and as ever we look forward to seeing you on the next episode see ya <laughs>